0: the Khmerians were moving once again. Young Tushpa had heard the news from the elders. Attacks by the Assyrians and the Orations had startled many. Time and time and time again, these peoples invaded with their armored infantry and archers, fighting for reasons few could understand. Tushpa and his tribe had journeyed for generations to escape the great evil of the north, the unstoppable horde that tracked dust into the air and caused calamity on all those who bore witness to them. Why should the Cimmerians be punished? What had they done wrong? They were simply trying to exist to survive. Tushpa rolled his hands into a fist and he yelled toward the hills. For generations his people had journeyed through the great mountains of the Caucasus. He had heard of the thousands who perished under the snows and fallen off the cliffs. But still they traversed on. He had heard about their many conflicts in the hills that followed, mountain kings and chiefs who hated the Cimmerians and offered them no refuge, no quarter. In many cases the Cimmerians were met by sword and arrow. Still, they journeyed on. Tushpa remembered the legends of mothers who sacrificed themselves for their children. He had heard of fathers who died in desperate hunts to provide a morsel of food. He whispered the stories of elders who took up the bow and the arrow in the defense of their people, and still over and over and over again others wished to see the Cimmerians dead. This time was the same. Two great battles had emerged in recent years. A mountain people, the Uratians followed their haughty and insolent king in an attack on the Khmerians. The Khmerian army had been outnumbered, Tushba had heard, but still the defenders were stalwart and darted along the hills with speed, pelting the Uratian invaders with arrows and stones. Many of the Uratians' best soldiers and commanders had been slain, and they were pushed back to their homeland. Tushba cheered silently as he remembered the story. Then a people from the great rivers of the south, the Assyrians, also attempted to invade and displace the Cimmerians. It was the same story. Though outnumbered, the Cimmerians stayed strong and outmaneuvered the crafty Assyrians. Their king, a horde man named Sargon, perished in the fighting. Tushpa wept tears of pride at the thought. But now the elders were right. Too many attempts had been made by these peoples, and once more the Cimmerians needed to make a decision. They would flee or stay. Some had talked about great pasture lands to the west, a plateau of bountiful water and grass. They would have to cross through thousands of kilometers, but the Cimmerians would perhaps find peace. The polities of that region were weaker than either the Assyrians and the Orations for that matter. Others, however, disagreed. Some of the more rowdy, some of the more prideful, some of the more ambitious believed that they could stay in the current lands and even prosper. Tushba heard word that a few would stake their fortunes as mercenaries. For Tushpa and his tribe, the choice was clear. Like their ancestors long ago, Tushpa and his people would journey west, further into Anatolia, and in the hope that they would one day find peace and safety. Little did Tushpa know such things would be hard to come by, and perhaps they never would. But still, they would journey on. The Cimmerians once more migrated. Welcome back to the Nomads and Empires Podcast, Episode 10. We are officially in the double digits, so heck yeah. Last time we covered the intricate political machinations of the ancient Near East between the years 721 to 714 BCE we covered the timelines of great figures like Sargon II and Rusa of Urartu and how their lives were intertwined with one another in a great cold war between the Assyrian and Urartian empires. Both polities conspired against one another, sending agents and conducting acts of espionage. By 714, both empires clashed in what appeared to be a titanic war that would define the future of the Near East. And then the Khmerians came. The Orations, as we may remember, hastily retaliated and launched an offensive campaign and were completely defeated. The Orations were pushed, Rusa fled to the city of Tushpa, and Sargon II took his opportunity. Just like that, the riders of the steppe had changed the course of history. Rusa was defeated, Rusa supposedly committed suicide, and Rusa would forever be relegated as a man lower than his counterpart Sargon. All this came to be because of a single battle between the Orations and the Cimmerians. And on the last episode, that's where we left things off. In a way, this series of events nestled together neatly into a single cohesive narrative. There were several strands, off in different places, sure, but they all connected together in this climactic, final set of cinematic moments. The story seemed concluded, but today we are reminded that history presses on, and importantly, the Khmerians are still here in the ancient Near East. Now last time we focused a lot on external players, the Orations and the Assyrians. For a podcast focusing on the empires of the steppe, I admit that we didn't really give the Khmerians much of the spotlight last time, so let's change our framing a little bit today. Let's now take a moment to consider where the Khmerians were by this point in time. It'll be a little bit of a recap, but we should orient ourselves with this new perspective. Throughout the 700s BCE, we've heard of raiders attacking Oration territory we noted that the Ureshans may have stumbled upon a people known as the Ishkigulu who may very well be the Khmerians. These particular peoples had raided Ureshan territory throughout the years, though we should note that the area had been raided by many other groups, so it's not a definitive connection. We've gone through a whole debacle on where the Cimmerians migrated in the ensuing years, but we know that eventually they would settle in the lands of Gamir, and wherever that actually is, who's to say? All we know is that it was somewhere in the Armenian highlands or in eastern Anatolia. From there, the Cimmerians began to enter the fringes of Assyrian territory. For a time, the Uratians kept the Cimmerians at bay, pushing their raids whenever possible. We can imagine a scene where nomadic raiders looted villages in quick attacks. Perhaps a town garrison may have attempted to fend off these invaders, but the speed and quickness of nomadic horse warriors would have proved quite powerful in this environment. Over time, these raids and their subsequent devastation may have placed political pressure on Oration leadership. In 714, the Orations under Rusa I tried to take things into their own hands by leading a large offensive against the Khmerians. They would be taking the fight to them. But as we know, the Orations were devastated, and this set in motion the dominoes that would lead to Sargon II's victory over Rusa I. And that's the story so far. And I know we really want to move forward with this narrative, but let me pause right here. The next historical epoch of the Cimmerians is frankly even more confusing and mysterious than the one we talked about before. The Cimmerians will move in a number of directions, entering further into Anatolia and even into Iran. In due course, they're going to interact with a lot of figures, including some pretty big names like Gyges of Lydia and Midas of Phrygia. In this context, the Cimmerians are players in this great narrative, where they influence the events of major characters in Greco-Roman tradition. I mean, we all know about King Midas, but I caution us from reading into this narrative as wholly historical. As always, let's deep reef and consider some of our sources for today's episode. In the last episode, we still had a substantial amount of primary sources, as Assyrian records from Sargon II and his many spies actually gave us valuable insight into the machinations of the region. We have some sources for this upcoming era, sure. These include Assyrian records from later rulers like Aserhadn, Banipal. These Assyrian records are actually really good, because they directly mention the attacks of the Cimmerians and even name a few of their leaders. However, these documents are really only framed within Cimmerian-Assyrian relations, and so the broader movements of the Cimmerians are obscured. They don't mention anything about a Cimmerian presence in Anatolia, despite a number of Greek sources asserting such. And of course, as I railed on before, the Cimmerians didn't leave us anything. We have no written documents or archaeological finds that we can conclusively place on the Cimmerians. Now, we do have Greco-Roman sources that mention the Cimmerians in this period of time. The Roman historian Strabo talks about a Cimmerian tribe that entered the Anatolian region of Paphlagonia. Herodotus has an entire section that connects the Scythians to the Cimmerians, It is interesting to consider that these sources are why we create connections between the Cimmerians and these famous figures. Strabo is one of the only reasons as to why we connect the Cimmerians to King Midas, but Strabo is hundreds of years removed from these events, and there is no other archaeological or textual proof to confirm this connection. Secondary sources are actually really good reflections of this paltry amount of sources. Both Rene Grousset and Christopher Beckwith offer us three total pages on the Camerians in their works, and their descriptions of Camerian movements after 714 literally only last a few sentences. Furthermore, these secondary sources never agree on the dates, and the same events are often dated to different years. I bring this all up because this is an important consideration. Given the nature of these sources, we're going to need to be a little critical as we move beyond 714. I will detail the story following the relatively traditional narrative, but I think we should raise our eyebrows here and there when we talk about the Chimerians being involved with events like King Midas' suicide. Alright though, with that out of the way, let's move on. In the wake of the year 714, the Khmerians found themselves in a rather advantageous position. Having likely spent generations moving through the Caucasus and Armenia, the Khmerians were finally given the opportunity to operate in a wide array of areas. We can guess that in the ensuing years, the Khmerians would have continued their raids into Urartu and nearby areas. It seems that the Khmerians did not embark on wars of conquest. We don't have any reports of territory being taken by the Khmerians and the Oratians were able to survive in some form for the next few years. The capital city of Tushba was not despoiled and the Oratian people were not annexed into some sort of steppe empire. In 708, Assyrian intelligence reports tell us that the Oratians were mobilizing their forces and Assyrian officers wondered if the Oratians were planning to march against Assyria. Instead, the Urartians once more took to the field to attack the Cimmerians. In the spring of 707, the Urartians once more repeated their efforts in 714 by invading Cimmerian territory. And like the last time, the Urartians were utterly defeated and pushed back, but it appears Urartu did manage to succeed in some sort of operational victory the Khmerians would not launch any additional raids into Oration territory in the years that followed. This lack of concentrated aggression points to me that the Khmerians may simply have wanted to maintain the possessions they had or otherwise they lacked the capacity to further any conquest. It seems then that this battle may have influenced Assyrian decision making. Sargon II, our lovely friend from last episode, decided to push out the Khmerians once and for all. He apparently didn't gain any lessons from the failures of the Orations, and I can imagine he had a bit of hubris in this situation. In 705, Sargon launched an offensive in Tabal to displace a group of raiders. We're not exactly sure who they were, but a lot of secondary sources believe them to be the Cimmerians. If this was the case, then Sargon II was slain by Cimmerian riders, and so the great reign of Sargon II was put to an end by the very same peoples who had devastated Rusa I a decade prior. After this, the Cimmerians sort of disappear for a bit. In most secondary sources, we're told that the Cimmerians suddenly show up on the fringes of Phrygia after 714. Christopher Beckwith says as follows, the Khmerians entered the ancient Near East in the late 8th century BC, where they defeated Urartu in 714 BC. Then they attacked the Phrygians of the West and destroyed their kingdom, unquote. While we could make this immediate jump in our own narrative, I think we can take some time to pontificate a little more deeply about the Khmerian movements here. We need to reframe the Assyrian and Urartian invasions from the Khmerian perspective. From this vantage point, the Cimmerians had faced multiple invasions after generations of migration. It may be that Oratian and Assyrian incursions into Cimmerian land had caused enough shock or fear to push the Cimmerians outward. Although the Cimmerians had beaten back these invaders, the amount of offensives on Cimmerian soil probably meant that their homeland was pretty easy to navigate and easy to operate in. I can imagine many Khmerian groups wanting to leave for areas that were more defensible. If we assume the Oresian and Assyrian military offenses as drivers of migration, then we also need to consider the Oresian and Assyrian polities as blockers of potential migratory routes. You see, I think we can infer why the Khmerians moved to Anatolia. There was no real reason for the Khmerians to migrate north. That meant heading back to the Caucasus, and if we assume the Scythians were still on the way, then that meant sure death. The Orations blocked the Cimmerians from any eastward movement, and there were other powerful states like the Elamites to consider as well. To the south, the Assyrians blocked any opportunity for access to the fertile lands of Mesopotamia. Again, the Orations and Assyrians had the operational capacity to launch invasions inside of Cimmerian territory. And although the Cimmerians could beat back these invaders, we've seen nothing so far that implies a willingness or ability for the Cimmerians to launch their own invasions. A small raid here and there pales in comparison to the amount of logistics needed in conducting a full-scale military offensive. With this being the case, I think by process of elimination, the Cimmerians were forced to move westward, which meant they would migrate onwards to Phrygia. Anatolia was a more decentralized and weaker region and therefore an area that the Cimmerians could better exploit. Here we should transition into a slight sidebar. This movement of horse nomads into Anatolia is a remarkably common development that will occur over and over again, and so once more the Cimmerians may represent the first recorded instance of this phenomenon. Anatolia is actually an amazing place for steppe nomads. Much of the country is mountainous, but it is also varied and diverse. The coastlines are fertile, contain natural harbors, and have become sites of major urban settlements. But it's the center of this region that we really want to pay attention to. Here, the center of Anatolia, is an elevated grassy plain standing at around 600 to 1,200 meters above sea level. From a climate perspective, this plain is typically semi-arid and cold, harsher than the Mediterranean coastlines. Temperatures in this region can vary from negative 2 degrees Celsius in winter to over 20 degrees in the summer. As such, vegetation in this region can be more sparse. Some trees do grow, such as oaks in Cappadocia, but otherwise much of the area is dominated by grasses. Such grasses were fully conducive for the steppe way of life. With ample grassland, rolling hills, and an array of water sources, the area was essentially perfect for wandering nomads that were looking for fertile pastureland. As steppe riders moved from, say, the Caucasus or Iran, they would have seen the areas of central Anatolia as being particularly conducive for their way of life. Groups like the Seljuk and Turkmen would thrive in these grasslands. Slowly, these groups would have brought families and animal herds. With these rich pasture lands, steppe nomads would be able to use the area as a base of operations throughout other parts of Anatolia and even beyond. The eventual erosion of the Byzantine Empire would come from gradual Turkic penetrations that centered in this Anatolian steppe. Indeed, the position of nomadic pastoralists in central Anatolia would last well into the Ottoman era. So when we recontextualize this back into the era of the ancient Near East, we realize something key. The lands of Phrygia are located in the western end of Anatolia and exist as part of this central Anatolian steppe. And so in the wake of these Assyrian and Oratian invasions, we can logically assume that Cimmerian leaders believed a better course of action, one with precedence before, would be to migrate. This migration would take over a thousand kilometers, but it also represented greater opportunities for safety, stability, and growth. So, the Chimerians may have initiated this movement in the aftermath of the Assyrian invasion in 705, and by the 690s, the Chimerians were entrenched in the central Anatolian steppe, putting them into direct conflict with the Phrygians. We should, however, note that not all Chimerians joined in this journey some Khmerians likely stayed behind in Gamir. Various records speak of Khmerian mercenaries who wandered around Armenia and Iran, and we can imagine these remnant Khmerians as heralding from those who chose to stay. Other Khmerians probably became co-opted into local populations. In many ways, this echoed the original migration of the Khmerians with some choosing to continue to safer and more fertile lands while others chose to stay behind. Through this movement into Anatolia, the Cimmerians would play a direct role in changing the course of history. But before we dive into this, let's quickly discuss the Phrygians. As we talked about in episode 9, the Phrygians were one of the major powers of the ancient Near East. Alongside Assyria and Urartu, Phrygia engaged in the great power competition that had been boiling over the region throughout the 700s. Where Assyria was centered in Mesopotamia and Urartu nestled along the Armenian highlands, Phrygia was placed within central Anatolia. Though Phrygia takes a mythological nature in many ancient sources, we actually know relatively little about this polity. Much of our archaeological assessments come from key settlements, and chief among these being the capital city of Gordian The Phrygians come from relatively unknown backgrounds, but by the 9th century BCE, we start to see the emergence of urbanization and political centralization. Around this time, we also start to see the expansion of the Phrygians into other parts of Anatolia. A Phrygian site at Daskelion points to the Phrygian presence in western Anatolia, for instance. Greek sources like Herodotus assert that Phrygia developed into a monarchy, though scholars like Professor Lynn Roller caution us from assuming that such leaders held complete central authority over the polity. The Phrygians may have been more decentralized in their organization than you would expect from a traditional monarchy. Important to our story is the emergence of a leader named Midas. Midas is a modern rendition of his name, but it probably sounded something more like Mita. Under Midas, the Phrygians evidently developed an international reputation. Assyrian, Greek, and Roman sources all emphasized the power of Midas, and later Hellenistic sources underline Midas with near-mythological connotations. According to the various sources that we have, Midas's rule lasted from 733 to 677. If this seems like an absurdly long period of time, that's probably because it is. The sources are not consistent with his reign, and it's possible that multiple Midases ruled in this time. I'm going to describe the narrative as a single person for simplicity, but we should keep in mind that this almost certainly wasn't the case. And so, let's move on. Under Midas, the Phrygians joined in the ancient Near Eastern Cold War, and we have a number of Phrygian artifacts found in Syria, Cyprus, and even Greece, hinting at the many international relations Phrygia appears to have fostered. In the last episode, we talked about Phrygia's own involvement in anti-Assyrian plots throughout Anatolia and the Armenian highlands. It really does seem like under King Midas, the Phrygians reached an unprecedented apogee. And then it all came tumbling down. The cimmerians defeated Rusa, killed Sargon II, and retreated to the west, finding refuge in central Anatolia. There, they came into conflict with Midas. This is, of course, how many of our secondary sources frame this series of events. When considering this a little more closely, the cimmerians probably initiated conflict through the occasional raid— Cimmerian riders may have looted Phrygian villages on the frontiers, and over time, Khmerian bands would have encroached further into the rich grasslands of King Midas. We can imagine conflict emerging similarly to what happened in Urartu. Khmerian raids would have led to Phrygian reprisals, and this would have resulted in outright conflict. In an interesting twist, some secondary sources assert that the Orations under King Rusa II, grandson of Rusa I, allied with the Cimmerians in an offensive against Midas. This alliance is debated, though if true, it would lay the foundation for further cooperation between the Orations and the Cimmerians in the years to come. It is puzzling to consider this alliance given the recent history of conflict between the two, but when we take a step back, we should remember that alliances in this region could be fluid. Yesterday's enemies could be today's friends, particularly if that group offered you substantial political advantages. The Orations probably saw the Camarians as a powerful pawn, and weakening Phrygia likely played well into Oration geopolitical strategy. Should this alliance be true, then the Orations were well rewarded. According to legendary sources, the Cimmerians were able to penetrate deep into Phrygian territory, and in response, King Midas is said to have drank bull's blood as a form of suicide. This event is key to our narrative, but I want to take another quick sidebar. As I hinted at earlier, I want to emphasize that the secondary literature offers two conflicting dates about these events. Some works, such as the Cambridge Ancient History, place these events in the 690s, while other works place these events in the mid-670s. The tension between these two dates appear to come from two differing narratives espoused by Roman authors. Meanwhile, scholars like Lynn Roller believe this to have occurred at an even later period, sometime in the 640s. As we established earlier, it is very likely that the Cimmerian raids happened during the reign of other King Midases rather than the legendary figure so often cited in Greek and Roman literature. As such, we should be very wary about these dates as absolute truths. We once more see this division in dating in the aftermath of the Cimmerian invasion. Some sources, such as Christopher Beckwith's Empire of the Silk Road, claim that the Cimmerians absolutely devastated the Phrygians and completely destroyed their kingdom. Professor Lynn Roller, meanwhile, explains that archaeological records find no evidence for this complete devastation in Phrygia. The ruins of Gordian indicate no major physical marks that can be traced back to this Cimmerian offensive. The answer probably lies somewhere in the middle of these poles. The Cimmerians likely did devastate much of the Phrygian countryside. Villages would have been despoiled, towns would have been looted, and many settlements would have been taken as nomadic pastureland. However, it seems unlikely to me that the Cimmerians had developed the siege tactics needed to destroy major Phrygian settlements. We have no indication from either secondary or primary sources of the Khmerians developing such weaponry or mechanisms, and we also don't have any evidence of Mongol-esque tactics, that of co-opting local peoples with key technological skills. I think the Khmerians were content to devastate the countryside and to take what they could. The devastation would have been plenty, but any impact on the main cities seems limited to me. In the course of this conflict, the Cimmerians were able to fully cement themselves in the region. Having now established a base in central Anatolia, the Cimmerians seem to have spent the next few years stabilizing the situation after their long migration and subsequent conflict with the Phrygians. If we place this conflict in the 690s, then the next major event pertaining to the Cimmerians would be in around 679. The 680s probably saw the Cimmerians further establish the central Anatolian plain as their pastureland, land, and we can assume that the Cimmerians would have conducted further raids throughout other parts of Anatolia. It seems then that by the end of the 680s, the Cimmerians may have once more found their confidence. In 679, the Cimmerians invaded the northwestern end of Assyria, the lands of Cilicia in modern-day southeastern Anatolia. Here we get something truly astounding when it comes to the history of these peoples. For once, we are given a name. Assyrian documents from this era describe to us the literal name of a Cimmerian chieftain who led this invasion. These Cimmerians were led by a man named Tushpa. However, this was not the only key fact about this event. The Assyrians, led by Esarhaddon, grandson of Sargon II, attempted to find other allies who could match the nomadic warfare espoused by the Cimmerians. It appears that the Assyrian king therefore attempted to recruit nomadic horse archers as allies. These allies were none other than the Scythians. Remember that Herodotus told us that the Scythians chased the Cimmerians, and here we find one of the earliest instances in which the Scythians are named and are in direct conflict with the Cimmerians. If we follow the unlikely narrative of Herodotus, then after generations of writing, the Scythians had finally arrived and could finally finish off the Cimmerians. Although the dates are fuzzy, we are told that a Scythian chief named Bertatua attempted to secure a marriage alliance with Esarhaddon, a demonstration of political changes taking place in this time. Needless to say, the usage of nomadic mercenaries to fight other nomads is a trend that we will see throughout history on all ends of the steppe, but I won't belabor that point right now. And so, in 679, the Cimmerians invaded the fringes of Assyria, and once more the Chimerians were defeated. In his own annals, Asar describes the situation as such. Quote, Tushpa, the Cimmerion, a barbarian whose home was far off, I cut down with the sword in the land of Ubushna, together with all of his troops. Unquote. We don't have any further details than that little snippet. Just like the Battle of 714 between the Orations of the Cimmerians, we don't have much about the tactics used or the order of battle. There are no heroic feats described, and we are left with a single sentence and other scant details, but I do think there's a lot to unpack here. In the wake of this battle, the Cimmerians retreated once more back into central Anatolia. It's difficult to say if this defeat represented something larger, heralding a chink in the armor. You see, after this event, the Cimmerians would somewhat disappear for a time in the historical record, and their next major event would be a near cataclysmic one. Between the 660s and 650s, the Cimmerians would be completely defeated by the Lydians under King Gyges, an event that would be renowned throughout the ancient Near East. A few decades after that, the Cimmerians would completely disappear, never again becoming a power worth even naming. In their wake, the Scythians would emerge as the dominant step power to influence the sedentary world. But that's getting a little ahead of ourselves. We'll save the discussion on Lydia and the downfall of the Cimmerians for the next episode. Instead, let's first reconsider what we've discussed thus far. In the aftermath of repeated invasions by the Orations and the Assyrians, the Cimmerians journeyed over a thousand kilometers to the west to settle on the central Anatolian plain. As such, the Khmerians laid the groundwork for a trend that would continue on for 2,000 years. Nomadic groups like the Seljuks and Pechenegs would find refuge and shelter along this central plateau, using it as a stable pastureland and as a base of operations for further incursions throughout Anatolia. However, this was not the only major trend we noticed. I only briefly touched on this, because next episode will really dive into this change, but we finally saw the emergence of the Scythians, and more specifically, the usage of the Scythians as mercenaries. In both ends of Eurasia, from China to the Middle East, we will see the usage of some steppe groups to counter other steppe groups, and I wonder if this is the first recorded instance of such developments. If so, then this would be one of the most important political developments to occur, as in doing such, the Assyrians would set the stage for policies used by groups like the Byzantine Empire and the Abbasid Caliphate. I'm not saying the Assyrians influenced these later polities, but I am saying it is interesting to note this as the first possibly recorded instance. The best way to defeat a steppe nomad was, evidently, another steppe nomad. But for now, I'm going to stop it here. We'll continue tracking these developments and the movements of the Cimmerians in the next episode. Next time, the Cimmerians face defeat at the hands of King Giygas of Lydia, and later on, by the Scythians. Farewell, and see you all next time on the windy plains of central Anatolia.